The following message was recorded during the Friends of Israel 2010 National Prophecy Conference season. These meetings were held in Winona Lake, Indiana and Lancaster, Pennsylvania. For other audio resources from the Friends of Israel, visit us at foi.org. I want us to go to Daniel chapter 7. Now this is a familiar blessed passage, but Daniel chapter 7 is, uh, uh, as I say, it's it's a throne room scene, ultimately. A throne room scene is included. Now, uh, I'm, ex- I, I, I'm suspicious that there's, if there's a crowd on the face of the earth, if we could assemble this many people anywhere in the face of the earth, uh, this group right here would be as likely to be intimately familiar with Daniel 7 as any. So I'm going to uh, uh, assume that uh, you're familiar with Daniel 7. I'm going to rehearse it very quickly. Let me say that in order to make my point here in Daniel 7, I need... Well, uh, uh, let's stay here for a moment here. Daniel chapter 7. You'll remember what happens here. Daniel is given a vision. And it is a revelatory vision. Uh, When God... uh, I was speaking on this just this weekend in a different setting, so I, I have an echo in my head. I hope I'm not repeating myself to you, but... When God spoke in the Old Testament, he did it through dreams and visions. Do you remember the verse that makes that point? Numbers chapters 12, when I speak to a prophet, I will speak in dreams and visions. And uh, sometimes when we, when we conceive of that, we get it confused with our nighttime dreams. And it has nothing to do with this. This is a revelatory dream. I like to think of it this way, and I, I hope I'm close here that there is a, a very real dimension, a time-space dimension, into which God can on occasion take people. And it's not as if you are unconscious or in non-sentient, if you don't mind. You are alert, you are awake, and you are interacting with, with the time dimension that we know. And uh, in that dimension, God gives men these revelatory insights, and the one place in the Bible where we are, God, uh, Daniel actually sort of takes us by the hand and walks us through the experiences here in Daniel 7. I emphasize it because he's not, he, like I say, he's not unconscious, he's not in some silly dreamy state where uh, things don't make any sense. He is entirely alert. What he sees is very real. There is an angel standing by when he... When he uh, sees that which is, is alarming to him. He asks a question about the angel. So at any rate, in this remarkable vision, Daniel says that he sees a series of four beasts. You're familiar with that. And uh, those four beasts represent what, what Jesus called in Luke 21, 24, the times of the Gentiles. Folks, this is, is, is huge as a construct, if you know what I mean, just as a basic set of ideas as to how to understand human history. In point of fact, according to Revelation 17, there have been six world-dominating kingdoms. And they are, to begin with, Egypt, and then Assyria. And then Assyria, of course, was conquered by Babylon, and then Persia, and then Greece, and then Rome. And we live in the latter days of that Roman domination. But Four of those kingdoms are remembered as the times of the Gentiles. And the reason they are given that term is because of Daniel 2 and Daniel 7, but 
the reason that term makes sense is because before, how can I say this? Before Babylon, uh, well, let me, let me start over. You know that in the course of time, as God was making himself known to mankind in the course of Revelation, God raised up a man with whom he made a very special covenant. That man was Abraham. He determined to make himself known through Abraham. He promised Abraham that he would become a nation. And in fact, Abraham, first of all, became a family. And then he became a clan. And then that clan did, in fact, become a nation under Moses. Now, God did not choose Abraham slash Israel because there was something intrinsically worthy in them. Why is it, can you tell me, that God, by his own testimony, chose, why did God set his love on Israel? Do you remember? Deuteronomy 7 and verse 7. I love that verse. I think it is so seminal where he says, I did not choose you because you were greater than the other nations, but, no, I'm sorry, i got to back up. He says, I did not love you because you were greater than the other nations, because, in fact, you were smaller, but because I loved you. Why did God love Israel? Because God loved Israel. You can never get behind that. There's nothing animate. Why did God love you? Not because there was something worthy or special in you, but because God loved you. There is nothing behind that. And so the point is, God did not choose Israel because they were special. He chose them as a means of putting himself on display. Now I pick up my, my, my argument. The point is that God raises up this nation. To this day, as you know, Israel regards themselves as having two fathers. Abraham is the father of the family. They became a family in Abraham. Moses is the father of the nation. They became a nation at Mount Sinai. And there at Mount Sinai, God cut a covenant, which we remember as the Old Covenant or the Mosaic Covenant. And by the terms of that covenant, he would become their king. That's exactly what's going on in the Old Covenant. God becomes king in Israel. As a matter of fact, the first mandate he gives Moses is to go down and build a throne room. We know it as the tabernacle. And Moses goes down and takes that collection and builds that tabernacle. God gifts Aholiabim, Bezalel, to equip them to do that. And they build that tabernacle. And in Exodus chapter 40, the glory cloud, King Yahweh, which had been hovering for all of these months on Mount Sinai, lifted up and moved in. Exodus chapter 40, that is King Yahweh taking his throne. That is the inauguration of King Yahweh. And now King Yahweh rules in Israel. He ruled until 592 B.C. That's another story. 592 B.C. is Ezekiel chapter 11, when the glory cloud departs. Now, as king, God made Israel a promise. And that promise was, I will bless you and I will curse you. I mentioned this yesterday. And he spelled out the curses. I'll bless your obedience, I'll curse your disobedience, and this is the curses. And the final curse, and this is remembered in Nehemiah's prayer again and again, he understood that the final curse would be this, that God would raise up a Gentile power to trouble and subjugate Israel. And in fact, God's a covenant-keeping God, and in fact, Israel did perpetuate, uh, did, 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 did remain in her sin, and therefore God, in order to keep his covenant, raised up a Gentile power. And he raised up at that season, by the way, 
says wandering just a moment. Uh, have you ever thought about this? When God, in order to very carefully keep his covenant, allowed Babylon to destroy Israel, to carry Israel off and to destroy the land, when God, in order to keep his covenant, I keep saying this, it's, it's because he is a covenant-keeping God. And when he did that, he put his name in the most serious worldwide jeopardy because it was universally assumed. Well, you didn't even have to reason to this. This was a priori, that if one nation defeated another nation, it was because the gods of this nation were more powerful than the gods of this nation. And so if Babylon, who served Bel, destroy Judah, who, deserved, who, who, who uh, served Yahweh, well, clearly Yahweh is less powerful than Bel, and God could not tolerate that. And so he took steps, and I'm convinced that you can reduce the steps that he took to one word in order to save his name. And that one word is Daniel. He raised up this remarkable young man, and uh, again and again in the stories of his life that we all cherish, you have this theme where somehow the gods, uh, all the rest of the gods, you know, it, it, it's, it's a contest between Yahweh. I mean, when Daniel interprets Nebuchadnezzar's dream, what happens first of all? All the wise men come in and say, we can't tell you both the dream and the interpretation. Nobody can do that. Why, a person have to live with the gods in order to do that. That's a confession of all the wise men, of all the pagan gods. And Daniel says, Yahweh can do that. And he does it. That theme is there again and again. Chapter 3. Remember when Nebuchadnezzar finally is about to throw the three young men into the furnace. And he says, if you don't bow down when you hear the, uh, the uh, sound of the orchestra, I'm going to throw you into the furnace. Then who is that God who can save you out of my hand? Well, there's an answer to that, isn't there? And uh, so my point is that, that Daniel is written, and Daniel is ministering and serving right at that time when God, by reason of his covenant-keeping character, has indeed allowed Israel to be placed under the heel of Gentile dominion. By the way, I spent a little time in Nehemiah not too long ago and, and, uh, recently, and, and it's, it's interesting to me that there in Nehemiah, Nehemiah has a great deal of detail as to what it means for a decree to be sent forth in the Babylonian or, or Persian Empire. And, and we just have a couple, three times in the book of Daniel when it simply says Nebuchadnezzar made a decree. But it's clear that when the emperor made a decree, every human ear had to listen to that decree being read aloud. There was a whole system by which runners, well, first of all, scribes would be brought in, and the decree would be copiously and carefully copied so it was exact, and then it would be, it would be dispatched by these runners to every corner of the empire, and, and the announcement would be made on such and such a day, the emperor has a decree, be under the big oak tree in the middle of town or whatever in the world, and everybody had to gather there. And I love the thought, somewhere around uh, let me do my arithmetic here. Somewhere around 580, uh, uh, I, I better not say, but somewhere early in the, uh, in the 6th uh, century B.C., shall we say, late in the life of Daniel. I just, I just love the thought of every single human being in the entire Babylonian Empire sitting and listening to an official representative of the Emperor Nebuchadnezzar read aloud Daniel 4. And, uh, and, and as that decree was read, that's what it is. Remember, Daniel didn't write Daniel 4. Nebuchadnezzar, he might have got some help from Daniel, but that's written over the signature of, of, of Nebuchadnezzar. 
And when he gets all done and says, my sense returned to me and I gave glory to Yahweh and acknowledged that he rules alone in heaven, that's my paraphrase. So my point is that, that we, at, at that time, see, here's what I'm saying. You have these four kingdoms that we can identify and trace in human history, and they're even reflected in the scripture of Assyria, and the, I'm sorry, Egypt, and then Assyria, and then Babylon. But early in the era of, that we know of as Babylon, by reason of his covenant-keeping nature, God allowed the Jews to be carried off. And then Daniel tells him that there's going to be a succession of four Gentile world empires, and he lays them out for him. And those four Gentile world, empire, uh, world empires are going to trouble and dominate Israel until when? Until the stone cut out without hands rolls out of the mountain and pulverizes Gentile world dominion and Gentile world power. It hasn't happened yet, but it may happen very, very quickly. Now I say that just to make the point that now we have this times of the Gentiles and so the grand dynamic from God's perspective of, of Babylon and then Persia and then Greece and then Rome is that this is the period during which his covenant people are subjugated and therefore, again, well, I won't, I won't go theological on you there, but, uh, but, I mean, there is an awful lot of theology which is willing to buy into the notion that somehow God is permanently done with Israel. Be still, my heart. And... Uh, and, and the fact of the matter is that Daniel makes it very, very clear that this is all in God's purposes to glorify himself, and, and the day is coming when it is going to put, be put right. So here's my point. I, you know the Daniel 7 passage. You have these four kingdoms. But then, as Daniel describes, and, and what he is doing for us here in, early in, in, in Daniel chapter 7 is he's just descri- he's narrating it. He took notes, folks. He's narr- You know what? Time out. I shouldn't have said that. He didn't have to take notes. Because uh, when you had, remember Jeremiah says that when you receive this story, it becomes a fire in your bones and you, it just, remember Nebuchadnezzar? He, he had this sort of dream and he couldn't forget it. He couldn't think about anything else. This just burned itself into your consciousness. And now Daniel, under the Spirit of God, is recording for it. Now watch, this is, this is you know what, I, we, sh- we should start in verse 8 because this is the latter day. You remember that these four kingdoms, the last kingdom is the, is the, uh, the nondescript, the monster and it has ten horns, and out of one of those horns comes a little horn. This is the first time in the Bible we are introduced to this personage who is going to become so big in the drama of the end time called the Antichrist. He's called a little horn here. But the remarkable thing, and it's, it's fascinating, folks, I just, just imagine if you are Daniel, and you're having this revelatory experience, and you're watching this unfold in some very real, though almost uh, super you know, beyond the normal, uh, I mean, we're in a realm that is very, is staggering. And you watch as you see these beasts, but then you see this little horn come out of the fourth beast, one of the ten horns of the fourth beast. In verse 8, it says, I was considering the horns, and there was another horn, a little one, coming up among them, before whom three of the first horns uh, uh, were, were plucked out by the roots, and there in this uh, uh, and there in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man. And this is the Point, and a mouth speaking pompous words. So here's this one who is speaking great blasphemous, and we're going to discover hateful and destructive words. And while he is doing that, I want you to get the scene. While that little horn is, is uh, thus comporting himself, if you don't mind, verse 9 says, Daniel says, I watched till thrones were put in place. Now, I may have talked about this here before, but uh, that's an interesting translation because the King James has... I watched while thrones were cast down. 
and, uh, and the, uh, uh, this is the New King James, and it has put in place, and many translations such as the Nazbe have were set up. So we're a little troubled here because on the one hand, the thrones were cast down, and on the other hand, they were set up. But again, I, I keep saying it's so important to read the Bible in terms of its own culture. And this is, uh, this is a culture in which thrones, quite frankly, were pillows. And uh, so here you have a servant who comes in and he's going to arrange the throne room and the monarch is going to come and take his position there on the ground, many times in the sands, but, but in this beautiful setting. And so there's these great fluffy pillows. So what is the, man, what is the servant doing? He's coming in and casting the thrones down. He's taking a pillow and tossing it on the ground. He's casting it down, but what's he doing? He's setting up the throne room. So they both are saying exactly the same thing. I have heard folks preach sometimes on... I watched till thrones were cast down, and it's taken as if they were human thrones. Oh, for the day when, when man's thrones be cast down. That's not the point here at all. It's uh, what we have here, I want to emphasize it because we're going to see it in Revelation 4, is this remarkable scene where the throne room, so you're Daniel, and you're watching. And then I'm going to read it. It says, I watched till the thrones were put in place, and the Ancient of Days, that's Yahweh, King Yahweh. Look, there are a number of prophets who in vision were given uh, entree into the very throne room of God. Folks, I believe it's literal and real and physical. It's, 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 it, it transcends what we can begin to imagine, so we don't want to reduce it to simply physical, but this is not just some sort of metaphorical, visionary, silly experience. This is real. And, now he, and, and Daniel is one of those prophets who was given a glimpse into the heavenly throne room. And he describes that the Ancient of Days was seated, his garment was white as snow, the hair of his head was like pure wool, his throne was a fiery flame, its wheels a burning fire, a fiery stream issued and came forth from before him, a thousand thousands ministered to him, ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him, the court was seated, and the books were opened. The court is in session, and Yahweh, king of the universe, has taken his throne. Now, it is an awesome scene, but what staggers Daniel is that while he continues to watch, verse 11, I watched then because of the sound of the pompous words which the horn was speaking. Now, notice how very carefully Daniel brackets those two references to the pompous words of the little horn around that courtroom scene. And the point is that Daniel is staggered at the fact that this little horn is so arrogant, so godless, so proud uh, that, that he continues to speak these pompous words and I watched but then he says and he's very quick I watched till the beast was slain and its body destroyed and given to the burning flame and then he says well let me read verse 12 though I'm going to come back to it in a moment he says as for the rest of the beasts they had their dominion taken away yet their lives were prolonged for a season at a time but this is huge verse 13 I was watching in the night visions and behold, one like the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. Now the Son of Man there, in the, in the uh, original language, in the Aramaic, it actually says one like unto a Son of Man. It doesn't have the definite article. Oh, I'd love to talk to you about this. Let, let me just say this. This was the favorite title that Jesus used of himself. It's interesting. If you look in the Greek lexicons, under Son of Man, one of the meanings they give is I, that is, the first person pronoun. Jesus used it like the letter, I mean like the word I. He used it almost as a first personal pronoun. And 81 different times he refers to himself as the Son of Man. 
Now, very quickly, like I got time to get into this, but it is so strategic because I just read a fascinating book, a uh, book with which I agreed about half of it, but nonetheless, it was tremendously instructive. And, uh, and, and he was making the point that Son of Man was not a well-known messianic title in the literature before Jesus. After Jesus, it becomes a primary messianic title. Now, out of that has come the heresy that either Jesus or the early church, which followed him and invented things about him, forgive me, uh, uh, made up this idea that Jesus was Messiah. And, and in fact, uh, uh, well, I, 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 I dare not trace it. But the reality is this. Jesus, I've talked to you about this before, but Jesus was wise as a serpent. And one of the realities that he faced when he came and offered himself as Messiah was that he offered himself at Messiah at a time when Rome was more nervous than ever else in her history about uprisings, and the place where they had the most seditions was, guess what, Judea. And Jesus is going to go out throughout the land of Israel for three and a half years making the claim to be the Messiah, king of Israel, in a place and at a time when a horrifically powerful Roman government had absolutely zero tolerance for any pretender kings. How did he get away with that? How did Jesus get away with that? And one of the ways was that he would take to himself titles which the first level of research would become obvious to a Jewish listener that he was claiming to be Messiah. See my point? What's going on in Daniel 7? What does it mean when it says that the Ancient of Days took his seat and one like unto the son of man, a son of man, uh, son of, the idea is one who is clearly human, one who is entirely, clearly, now he's not only human as we find out later, but clearly it's a human being. So one like unto a son of man comes with the clouds of heaven. He came to the Ancient of Days. They brought him near before him. Then to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people's nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. His kingdom, the one which shall not be destroyed. So I always used to ask question, uh, students all the time, and this was, not, this was a, not exactly a trick question, but I had a, uh, a little bit maybe. How many kingdoms are there in the book of Daniel, in, in Daniel chapter 7? And if your answer is four, shame on you for heaven's sakes. There are five. And that fifth kingdom is the one we're looking for. And so those four, first four kingdoms were literal, physical, earthly kingdoms, and yea, verily, the fifth kingdom will be as well, but will be a kingdom of righteousness. Now, I love that scene. Let me just say, uh, Daniel is, it, it has some questions about this, and the, and the angel uh, instructs him. Let me just read verses 26, 27. Then I want to go to Revelation. The court, this is the angelic interpretation. He's explaining exactly the significance of what Daniel had seen, and he says this is the significance of that courtroom scene. The court shall be seated, and they shall take away his, that is the little horn, who is the culmination of Gentile power, his dominion to consume it and destroy it forever. Notice that. By the way, because I've, I've lost my time, let me, let me just take you back to verse 12, because that's the significance. I love this, folks. I think it's so big. I want to come back to it in a minute. But when he says in verse 11, the Antichrist in that fourth kingdom is entirely destroyed. And then he says, gloriously, in verse 12, this is Daniel speaking, as for the rest of the beasts, they had their pro dominion taken away, yet their lives were prolonged for a season in time. The thought is this. When Babylon fell to Persia, 
in many ways, Babylon lived on. You remember the Persians took over their cities, took over their cultures in many ways. When Greece conquered Persia, this is a fascinating thing, because, of course, the Greek Empire was established by Alexander. Alexander was, his personal tutor was Aristotle. Aristotle had taught him that all things non-Greek were, were contemptible and to be despised. Uh, I mentioned to a church last night, what, in, in, in the Greek mind there were two kinds of people in the world. Who were they? Greeks and, what's the other one? Barbarians. That's all there are. And as I understand it, that word barbarian was invented by the Greeks, and it simply meant somebody who didn't speak Greek. Because if you didn't speak Greek, when we heard you speak as a Greek, it sounded to us like bar, 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 bar. And so they just called you barbarians. And all it means is, if you're not Greek, you're not nothing. You know, you're, you're, I don't know. But, but the fact is that although Aristotle had trained Alexander to have nothing but contempt for things non-Greek, when he went out in his great conquest of the Persian Empire, he fell in love with things Eastern. And in many ways, he absorbed many elements of, of Easter. So, so Persia lived on in Greece in spite of the fact that in its inception, Greek culture was about destroying everything else. And then, of course, Greek lived on in Rome. The point is, Babylon lived on in Persia. Persia lived on in Greece. Greece lived on in Rome. But when Rome is destroyed, it'll be entire. That's the point. It, when, when God finally puts an end to this wicked Gentile rule, it is going to be root and branch. It will not live on in any sense. And that's where verse 12 is being interpreted in verse 26 when the angel says that they shall take away his, that is Rome's dominion, and consume and destroy it forever. And then the kingdom and dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people, the saints of the Most High, and his, Messiah's kingdom, the Son of Man, is an everlasting kingdom. All dominions shall serve and obey him. Now that's the scene in uh, Daniel 7. Let me take you to Revelation 4. Uh, I'll do this very quickly. Revelation chapter 4. It is such a parallel. More than anything else, what I want you to see, and you can run with this in your own study, but I want you to understand, and I think most of you do, but to emphasize the remarkable parallel between Daniel 7, the throne room scene, and Revelation 4 and 5. Now, by the way, you all know this. If you don't, uh, you're new to us. But uh, uh, you know that uh, in Revelation, we have the outline of the book in verse 1, chapter, uh, chapter 1, verse 19. Uh, write the things which are. That's the vision of Jesus, which John saw there in the Isle of Patmos. Precisely, it's the second time Jesus had appeared in that form to John. You remember that? The first time was at the Mount of Transfiguration, but now John sees it again on the Isle of Patmos. He says, write the things which are, write the things, I'm sorry, which you have seen. What did I say? Write the things which you have seen, write the things which are, that's two and three, uh, the churches. But then Revelation 4, write the things which shall be metatauta, after these things. So the end time drama begins in Revelation 4, where John says, after these things I looked. And the, the end time drama in the book of Revelation begins, guess what, with a throne room scene. And in Revelation 4, you have this remarkable description, this description of this remarkable scene. And I, I'm not going to read it. I haven't left myself time. But I'd invite you to and notice how there are other elements, but how clearly parallel this is. As a matter of fact, I'll go further. How clearly dependent this passage is on Daniel 7. I don't know that we can fully understand the significance of this scene in Revelation 4 if we do not, as God intended, bring the Old Testament with us and understand that at the end of that 
times of the Gentiles, the times of the Gentiles in Daniel 7 draws near, there is a throne room scene. And in that throne room, uh, Yahweh takes his seat. And then there's this element, and it's a precious element. Uh, because in, in this throne room scene, you have the description of the, uh, the, the throne room itself and its glory and its attendance and the songs that are being sung. But then the drama begins in verse 1 of chapter 5, where it says, I saw, John speaking, in the right hand of him who sat on the throne, a scroll written inside and on the back and sealed with seven seals. Now, I haven't got time to develop this, but let me just tell you, I'm convinced that this is the land deed to the earth. I think that's exactly what's at stake. It's interesting that in the ancient world, if you had a legal contract and you wanted to... You wanted to uh, render that inviolable, you wanted to preserve this, the, 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 that contract, you would write it on a scroll, and then you would deposit the scroll in a clay jar with a lid, and then you would seal that lid with, with, with wax, and then you would find a witness to impress his signet ring on that wax. Does that make sense to you? And therefore, nobody could change that document without going to the judge getting the witness with the signet ring to come and take an oath that it had not been broken, he had not resealed that, and therefore you could open it and it was preserved intact. Does that make sense to you? Now, if it was a re- oh, and by the way, if it was a really important document, you would get more than one witness. And if it was hideously important, you would have as many as the perfect number, seven witnesses. It would take a lot of work to get all those people together before the judge and open it. So it's clearly a very, very important document that is seven sealed. But beyond that, if it was a land document, what would happen is this, that I buy a piece of land from you and we work out the document, the, the deed, and we put it in the, uh, the jar and the jar is sealed. But time goes by and the pass and the... Uh, the land passes to my uh, descendants and, and, and your descendants are holding the document and so on. And maybe there's some friendly dispute and so as to exactly what the borders of the land were and so on. We can't remember for sure. So you want to check the land document, the deed, but you don't want to go through the whole business of opening it. And so you would write the terms of the arrangement, of the agreement on the outside of the jar. And I think that's the point here when it says written without and within. I think the point is that it's a reference to a land deed. That's how you would describe in the ancient world a land deed. And the fact that there are seven seals makes it very clear that it's a hugely important land deed. And so now in chapter 5, you have this one sitting on the throne, Yahweh, and we are weeping because there is no one who is worthy to open the scroll. And uh, then comes the voice, John says in verse 4, I wept much no one was found worthy to open and read the scroll to reclaim the earth from its temporary squatter owner. Who can reclaim the earth? And then verse 5, one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. Behold, the lion, the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has prevailed to open the scroll and to loose its seven seals. And I looked, and behold, in the midst of the throne and the four living creatures, in the midst of the elders stood a lamb bearing evidence that he had been slain, is the idea. And he having seven horns, perfect power, having seven eyes, perfect wisdom, and so on. And he came and took the scroll out of the right hand. That is immediately parallel to the scene that we saw in Daniel 7, where one like unto a son of man appeared before the Ancient of Days and was dispatched. Now, I'm going to argue to you very quickly. Those, I think those two passages, Daniel 7, 
Revelation 4 are tremendously, I think they're entirely parallel, and taken together they suggest some things concerning God's, what, what, the, the, God's tomorrow right here has something to say to us about man today. Real quickly, I'm going to just say it and we're going to be done. Number one, it's interesting to me that Daniel 7 has the background of Daniel 2. You know this. And in Daniel 2, you have the same configuration of four kingdoms. But in that case, they are, because it's Nebuchadnezzar's dream, they're a beautiful, awe-inspiring statue, right? This huge statue of various metals and so on. What to Nebuchadnezzar's vision is an awe-inspiring statue, in God's perspective, is a series of four beasts, each one more rapacious and cruel and aberrational than the one before. God's appraisal of man's today is very different than man's. Does that make sense to you? The second thing I want to point out to you is this, just from these throne room scenes, the thing that staggered Daniel in Daniel chapter 7 is that even as the throne was being assembled, the horn, the little horn, continued to spout great blasphemous and pompous words. And what that suggests to me about man's today, the culture in which we live, is that it is at its, most, at its heart, it is in its essence, rebellion against God. I think it is so important to understand that the culture in which we live is so determinedly and definitionally angry at God, we cannot make common cause with it. We have got, I, now again, there's a lot here as to how, how a Christian conducts himself in a fallen world and so on, but I think we have to go in understanding that this, we live in a day, in a culture, uh, man's today I'm calling it, which is, above all other things, defiant rebellion against God. But the third reality is this, and, and maybe I'm going way too quickly, but with regard to God's tomorrow, what do these throne room scenes testify to us? And the third reality is this, that God is going to use man's today to affect his own glory. I think it is so important to understand that with all the corruption and distortion and rebellion, and I keep saying one of the things about the amillennial construct which is most troublesome to me is that it argues that this is as good as God can do with human history that human history is this it's, the kingdom is already here and it'll never get any better than this be still my heart I can't imagine a more discouraging thought and uh, the Bible is so clear that in point of fact God is going to wipe this clean and his son is going to reign on this earth and when he reigns every knee shall bow and every tongue will confess that he is the Christ to the glory of God the Father, I would humbly submit to you that that is not going on in our culture today. Uh, as, as Habakkuk says, when Jesus reigns, when Messiah reigns, uh, the knowledge of the glory of the earth uh, of the Lord will cover the earth as water covers the sea. I cherish that hope, and I would submit to you again, it's not going on. But here's the thing. God has not lost control. It's not as if this sneaked up on God and he didn't see it coming. He couldn't do any better in this. All of this, this culture in which we live is in fact the backdrop against which throughout eternity we will measure the goodness and the grace and the power of God. I, I've said to you before, it's, it's often said that we premillennialists are, are horribly uh, pessimistic and we think that just the world's going to get worse and worse and therefore... 
oh, I heard one of the most awful sermons I've ever heard not too long ago, uh, insisting that uh, dispensationalism is the reason that uh, Christians have been careless about adoption, the reason that uh, heretofore the Christian community has not been aggressive about rescuing babies by adoption is because we just, we're premillennialists, we think the world's going, you know, it's, it's, it's falling apart and there's nothing to be done about it. Well, let me tell you something. If the question before the house is, do I believe that fallen man can make anything noble of human history, I am a pessimist. But if the question before the house is, do I believe that, that, that in spite of man's wickedness and fallenness and machinations, that we serve a God who is moving history inexorably and carefully toward that day when he will put his glory on display across this earth and his son will reign in righteousness, I'm an optimist. I'm looking for that day. And, and so the point is, I think we are going to be able to, to, to glory in who God is because we will measure what he has done against the backdrop of man's today. So God's using it to his own glory. Amen. All right, let me have a word of prayer with you. Our Father in heaven, I thank you so much for the hope that we have. We have, and, and, and to look about us is, is not to be hopeful. It seems like everything is going in the wrong direction. And there, But Father, we know that all of this is in your perfect plan and that you have never for a moment abandoned the throne and that you will not be held accountable in any sense for any of the wickedness of man, but by the same token, you will use that to your own glory. And there is coming a day when your son will reign on this earth and we, by your grace, will reign with him. And the people whom you have chosen, not because of some special goodness on their part, but because you intend to use them to glorify yourself, that people will be redeemed and will, will, will rule over this earth. Father, all of that in perfect fulfillment of what your scriptures have promised us. We thank you for these scenes where we get a glimpse into that day when, when indeed our Savior Jesus will be dispatched from a heavenly throne to repossess this earth. We hunger for it. Even so, Lord, come Jesus. We are, we are saying, come quickly. We are saying, thy kingdom come. We are hungry for that day when, uh, uh, when, when, when your will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And we know that it will not come until your your Messiah, our Savior, rules. We thank you for that hope, and we look forward to it in his name. Amen.